Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, it's a two-hour and ten-minute what-stravaganza as Graham McMillan and I tackle a few things very briefly, books we forget to get at the comic store, Kirkmanitis, the five most powerful comic book writers in Hollywood, the secret history of Wonder Woman, and a few topics at length. The curious case of Captain Marvel in the sales charts, Avengers 251 to 277 by Roger Stern, Mark Grunwald, John Basima, and Tom Palmer, and the remarkable read that is Farrell Dalrymple's The Wrenchies from her second books. Show notes await you at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy... And thank you for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan. Welcome to Ice Station Portland. <laughs> is the weather cold there? Is that what you're saying? Well, according to the internet right now, it is currently 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 degrees Celsius, with light ice pellets and fog. Oh I would God. like to say that having been out in it today, I think it might be colder than that. Oh my God. Uh, there's also a 15 mile per hour wind in an easterly direction. Um, and visibility is six miles. I, I know you're always concerned about visibility. It's six miles, Jeff. You can't see any further than six miles. Your telescopic vision would be useless. <laughs> that That is a current concern of mine. And any time I step outside the, the my doors is how far can I see with my telescopic vision? So, yeah, six miles. That's that's not a lot. I'm sorry. That all, it's lucky you're not in Portland. That's all I'm saying. Yes. My, that's how I think of it every morning. My <laughs> goodness. As um, I wake up. And I say that not just to complain. I am currently cuddling a cup of tea. I'm not joking. <laughs> um, but also because, as a warning, uh, there have been power cuts in various parts of Portland because of the weather. What? So if I just suddenly disappear, I might have temporarily lost power. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, happens, what you've heard you heard is Graham McMillan announcing he has a podcast kill switch <laughs> and will happily pull it if this becomes too uncomfortable or awkward. Oh, that would be spectacular, wouldn't it? That would be really great. You'll be like, so Graham, what did you think about? <laughs> Time to talk about the wrenchies, Graham. Graham. <laughs> Graham. Yes, uh, indeed. How are you? I know you're not having the greatest day. I'm not having the greatest day. It has to be said. This day has been far from great. Uh, you know, ugh, well, I, we'll spare the listeners uh, all the gruesome details. Um, and just focus on the positive, which is to say I got to the comic book store um, yesterday for the first time in about three weeks. So I was three weeks behind. And holy crap, there were a lot of comic books out. You know? I, I have a question for you, because I also got to the comic store yesterday for the first time in, in three weeks, wow. maybe four weeks. Um, did you forget lots of stuff that you wanted to buy? You know, I... I, all, I, I always do, and then get back, and I'm like, oh, that, that's out. Right. Shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, um, I think I was, I hope, pretty well covered, because uh, I had the secret weapon of armed with my phone and and I was there for like about an hour talking with people and stuff. Uh I was able to load up the shipping list for the last 3 weeks. Uh I see you're smart. So, th- but that being said, yeah, I still managed to forget. Like I got home and I was like, "Oh, 
crap, right? The second issue of Gotham Academy, I think, came out. And in fact, I was just getting ready to check yeah, yeah, that. Yes, it did. It did. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, about last week. Yeah. Oh, see, there you go. See, I even thought it was this week. So I totally – so yes, I bought a bunch of stuff and then afterwards got home and went, oh, shit, did I crap? You know. Yeah, so. yeah. I th- there really was a bunch of stuff that I just I just did not see on the shelves and therefore was like didn't even think to ask about. It. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of tough. Like a pull list will take you only so far in these modern days, especially because I feel like there's a lot more stuff that I'm trying to pick up kind of off the shelf because you don't yeah. want to miss cuz like, here's the thing, at least me when pull list, I'll forget to take stuff off my pull list. Mhm. And therefore, like, I'm buying it for months. Yes. And I end up resenting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm also really bad at putting stuff on pull lists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, I was really surprised in a way by some of the stuff I didn't have on my pull list. Um, Like what? Well, let me see if I can find it. Let's see here. Uh, Do, 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 do. Well, um... No, I guess I'm not that surprised. Like, okay. <laughs> like, oh, for, here's I'm a good surprised. example. Yeah. Here's a good example. You and I both love uh, Wild's End by Abnett and yeah. Colbart. But yeah. I forgot to put that on my pull list. Um, I totally have gotten hooked on Grayson. Um, you know. that's, that's one of the things I forgot. Yeah. I, it's not in my pull list. I didn't realize the fourth issue was out until today when I saw someone talk about it online and I was like, oh, motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. That, that was actually one that I was able to, to hunt up by checking the list and being like, oh, right, cool, okay. You know, there's a number of books that I'm very, I'm on the fence about, but I'm on the fence in a positive way. So it's kind of like, I'm sort of surprised that I didn't, I don't have Batgirl on my pull list or. Um, so did, did you get the, the, the second issue of the, the Bab Star, Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher run? Yes. Yes, I did. I, I look forward to discussing that with you later. Oh, okay. Well, that, that is excellent. Um, you know, Kirkman and Azaketa's Outcast, which I'm very, like to say that I run hot and cold on it is probably an understatement, but you know, every time I pick it up and flip through it, I'm just like, Oh my God. Like Paul Azaketa's art just, just, Oh, it, you know, he kind of deserves a better book. doesn't he? No, it so does. It so does. <laughs> oh my God. Robert Kirkman is suffering from Kirkmanitis so hard on this title. I cannot believe that there have been five issues out and, and it, and the pacing is just. Well, but here, here's the thing. While I agree as a reader, mm-hmm. I also have this uh, feeling of he's got nothing to stop him suffering Kirkmanitis. Kirkmanitis has worked out really fucking well for him. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and but I guess there's a couple of things that sort of surprise me about Kirkman in a way because it's sort of like. Uh, uh, it, to, to put it bluntly, one of the big pluses that he has about The Walking Dead is when two people sit down and have some boring-ass conversation, he can have a zombie – bless you. Did you sneeze or did something explode or what happened? I, I sneezed, but unfortunately I muted myself at the start of the sneeze and then while sneezing, unmuted myself. <laughs> okay, I was sneeze. wondering. All of a sudden it was like somebody tossed a garbage bag into your room and I was like, what? <laughs> What was that sound? Yeah, you just heard the second half of my sneeze, listeners. <laughs> wow, 
that's something that we're all going to be. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm really now. sorry. No, 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 no. That's fine. Uh, I, I feel like Kirkman is, uh, yeah, absolutely. He's got every reason to suffer from Kirkmanitis, and yet there seems to me he should have a a, a certain sense of, hey, you know, I can't have a zombie lurch into any scene and and you know bite somebody's head off. What am I going to use for the underlying, the replacement underlying tension? You know what it's, I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, Walking Dead also has a, an advantage of having a very, very big cast, and if nothing else, a, 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 out of utility, it seems like as long as some of as interminable as some of Kirkman's scene, scenes seem in The Walking Dead, you're. I'm also highly aware how much worse it could be if it was just a book with like three characters. Unfortunately, Outcast only has three characters, <laughs> so. Oh, Jeff, we've been doing this podcast for so long. I know your setup lines. <laughs> I was listening to three characters. I was like, I know where you're going next. <laughs> that's so sad. Or maybe not. It's probably... Uh, We're getting in a rhythm, Jeff. Yeah, that, that's what it is. We've been doing this for, what, five years or so? We're getting in a rhythm, That's finally. right. That's right. That is that is certainly true. So, uh, yeah, but, oh, my God, the book is just so lovely. And the art and the coloring choices are so perfect and um yeah i just i just wish the book was was a little better a little stronger you know okay so let me ask you this because i've asked this before and i'm not sure either of us ever came up with an answer that satisfies either of us right uh how long do you stay with a book that you think is beautiful but you hate the writing well okay first off it helps that i don't entirely hate it you know, okay, where you don't like the right. Uh, it's a good. It's really a good question. I mean, because of course, I feel like the the um, the art to story to bad, you know, to story potential, et cetera, et cetera. Like it all shifts a little bit. You know what I mean? Like this one, I can say that I'm probably. Uh, well, I, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that these days, thanks to the miracle of people's support. Uh, through Patreon and things, I feel that I can be a lot more adventurous and go, say, three to five issues of a book that isn't that that has potential but isn't quite clicking for me. You know, really? Yeah, yeah. So something like The Wicked and the Divine, I think I jumped off after three issues. Um, and interestingly enough, I found that the art was, I. I I think I like the art in many ways even more than I like it in in Outcast, but I sort of didn't. I like the premise less, and I like the, um, I, yeah, I just didn't. I didn't. I you know I I think Karen Gillan is is hands down overall a stronger writer overall than than Kirkman, but I also found that, that I was not enjoying it very much uh, at all. Well, I I think that while I agree, I think uh, Gillan is. A, is... Uh, uh, I'm going to go better, more than just stronger. Uh-huh. Uh, right on Kirkman. I also think Kirkman writes about things that are more in tune with your interests yes. than Gillen. Yeah, yeah. So you have like you know, I'll take a you know a writer who I think is 75 percent in tune with my interests more right. than one who's 50 percent in tune. With exactly. My even if they're yeah. even if they're sometimes better. So yeah. Yeah. So so which is probably why I've got like I think I've got. You know, the, I have the first five issues of Outcast, and I could see myself maybe going up all the way to issue ten before 
discarding it if it really mm-hmm. hasn't if it hasn't clicked in any sort of meaningful mm-hmm. way. So. That's that's one of the reasons I'm asking, and this sir, this definitely ties on something you said earlier on as a joke. Mm-hmm. Was that that was kind of my attitude towards the wrenchies? Mm. There came a point relatively early on in the wrenchies mm-hmm. where I was very conscious that what was keeping me going, aside from the fact that like it's a it's a complete graphic novel, mm-hmm. you know, I can finish the story, right? Um, but I was continuing to read because. I appreciated the craft, mm-hmm. and I thought that it was a beautifully illustrated look book, and a, a, the look of it was very interesting to me. I think right. that a lot of stuff Dalrymple does with his page layout uh, and with his word balloons as well is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. But on a story level, I I signed out super early. Hmm. Um, in large part because, and I was saying this in emails to Matt Terrell today, I don't think I have the life experiences that allow me to connect with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, because I I, 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 I was weirdly aware of what you said last time when we talked in the podcast mm-hmm. along the lines of it is all the ingredients of something I should love, but I won't love it. Yeah, yeah, that that was my worry. Um, and and what what it really because I, I so I, I find myself not loving it as I was right, reading it right and I was like why am I not what is not working for me mm-hmm. and it really came down to I I had no emotional connection to any of it mm-hmm. like I appreciated all of it mm-hmm. on an intellectual level mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I was like that's very smart that's very clever that's beautifully illustrated right but emotionally it meant nothing to me. Right. That's, that's sort of my feeling is, is I, I tend to, you know, as, as you know, I tend to run a little much warmer on the, the pure formalism scale, I think, than you. Um, oh, d- definitely. But, but also I suspect that, so I, when I was like, oh yeah, you're going to love it. I'm like, or not. <laughs> exactly. Um, you're, you're going to appreciate it. Yeah. But I also, I also feel that you have a, you, I, I think we both, un- you know, I, I say, unfortunately for my, my own ends, I think that you, I tend to skew a little darker and you tend to skew a little lighter. You know, I feel well, like that, that's, that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Uh, I had a really rough entry into the book because mm-hmm. I am so fucking over future dystopias. Mm. Like that is that is if it wasn't for the fact, and you know this because I've had this book for months and I hadn't read it. Yeah. If it wasn't for the fact that you and Dylan Todd were both raving about it, yeah, I wouldn't have gone back to it. Right. Because I basically hit the point really early on where I was like, "I know future dystopia," and I was like, "Done." <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, I have no need for future dystopia anymore. Uh, like, every, it feels like everything or every second thing I see now. Is in a future dystopia, but and I, I, I'm very. I was like, I just said this instinctive, no. Um, but and it's not. It's not that sort of story when you right. read into it. Like that. The, but that, I'm saying that's that was my initial reaction upon the you cut from the two kids in the the cave to to the Renchies. Right. I was like, no, dropping it. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so I went back, and I was like, uh, you know, almost holding my nose as I went back in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. going, "Oh, this is not for me." <laughs> right. Uh, it really reminded me, um, in a very strange way, of the Captain Victory series. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that Joe Casey's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, because I think both are very much born of 
uh, childhood disaffection of people raised in a specific era and in a specific urban environment, which I don't share. Interesting. I mean, how do I put it? Like, that's kind of, I see your point. Um, but, I, well, I mean, okay, the, the, I think my thing is, is that, um, honestly, I feel that a lot of this, uh, that, 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 like you said, there, there's a similarity, I think, to, to Casey's Captain Victory, um, also to the, the Omega the Unknown reboot yeah. that, uh, Dalrymple illustrated for, with Jonathan Lithem and collaborator. Um, and, and those books in turn point back to a very specific sort of seventies urban milieu. Um, yes. and, and even though this one is probably, you know, Dalrymple sort of mining actually a, Late eighties, uh, urban milieu. It's it's basically the same old thing, I suppose. Well, in that what, way, what's really interesting is I see a lot of Lethem's novels in it yes. as well. Yeah, and so I think what what's happening is the Renchies is second generation Gerber influence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in a I, lot of ways, sure, and, sure. And you know, uh, definitely Casey's Captain Victory is first generation Gerber. And obviously Omega the Unknown, the Unknown was as well. Right, right. Well, no, no. I think Dalrymple's definitely uh, – you're right. It reminds me a lot of uh, – in parts, especially Fortress of Solitude, um, particularly in the way that the author chooses to put in a, a, a highly unreliable slash – Potentially highly unlikable narrative narrative stand narrator stand in you know mm-hmm. yes um, uh, for me interestingly enough it also strikes me you mentioned Gerber but I I also think of another in, big influence on uh, Lithem's work which is Philip K Dick um, the Wrenchies reminded me a tremendous amount of books like uh, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Um, really? the, the three stigmata of Palmer Ald- Eldridge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's fascinating to me because one of the things I love about those books is that they, I'm trying to think of a way to say this. It doesn't sound monkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, they feel more grounded in a reality that I recognize. Right. And I feel that the wrenches is purposefully removed from a reality that, that we recognize in favor of a metaphorical setting for particular emotional states. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, or particular emotional states, but also, I mean, it's, it's such a huge book of, to me, I mean, uh, about, um, adolescence. I mean, Okay, for example, oh, no, I, I agree. I'm not going to argue with that. Topic. When I said the transmigration of Timothy Archer, I actually have to dial it back because I'm wrong. I I really meant the Divine Invasion. Like uh, the Wrenchies reminds me a lot of the Divine Invasion in that um, uh, that's one of Dick's books where he very specifically and aggressively points to the cracks in the fictional narrative as important and essential to understanding the work, right? Mm -hmm. And I kind of actually feel that that is the case with the Wrenchies, is that 
for a formalist book, and maybe I'm, you know, since I'm like a fan of stuff like Gravity's Rainbow or whatever, I'm especially in the tank for highly formalistic works that self-destruct, that build self-destruction in as a point of um, underlining the inherent unreliability of the narrative and the narrator and the writer. Um, because the Wrenchies is so strongly about the, it's, it's a very despairing belief about the inherent corruption in childhood that, that emerges from becoming an adult or how one becomes an adult that by, by dint of being made by an adult, um, it's super, super important to Dalrymple that all of his adult narrators are unreliable and that he himself, by the time you get to the end of the story, there is a distinctly unpalatable feel to it that, that I feel is, is intentional. And I mean, of course, if you look at the book, the, the, the amount of grotesquerie that he packs in and packs in relatively early, I have to say for myself, oh, the, the opening is, is, yeah, I yeah. had to push myself to get past that opening. So I totally know what you mean in the sense of like even getting past that. But I mean, it does not really get, you know, I mean, it's in that sense, it very much wears it on its sleeve. The idea that what you're reading is a Gnostic text that can only talk metaphorically about what it's tackling and that anyone who tries to decode that text for you, um, is inherently super untrustworthy, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and, and like I said, I'm kind of like, that's not really what I take a think of as the Graham McMillan, you know, good read. You know well, what I mean? <laughs> what is, what was really interesting to me is the number of times where, I got echoes of Grant Morrison works. Mm -hmm. Very much so, yeah. Uh, which, which, I mean, it's present all the way through. It is essentially uh, the parts of Seven Soldiers mixed with uh, Flex Mentallo. Flex Mentallo, and, and I think a certain chunk of the filth as well, too. Yeah. Um, but the difference for me is both, I think my life experience is closer to what Grant Morrison's doing in mm -hmm. those books, especially because he's, especially Flex Mentallo, is amazingly autobiographical. Mm -hmm. um, Wait, for him also, or for you? For him. Because okay, just, I, you said autobiographical, but I just want to make sure that I was understanding your usage. Of um, but also, Morrison is much more optimistic. Mm -hmm. uh, naively so at times. Right. But, but Morrison, even with the filth, cannot write something that entirely signs on to the we are all flawed and everything is going to go to hell. Mark Morrison, Morrison's version of when we grow up, we inherently become corrupted is Flex Mentallo, which ends up with, but then the superheroes will save us. Whereas, uh, yeah. you disagree? I, I, I disagree that that's his ultimate statement. I feel like that's a statement that he continues to reiterate and refine, but I sort of feel like the filth is very much a referendum on flex mentallo because the superheroes do arrive and they all end up being, you know, screwed up perverts and superhero outfits anyway, you know, but then he goes back. I don't know. I feel, I always feel that, uh, all-star Superman is in a weird way, a response to the filth. 
Oh yeah. Well, I, I feel. Do you know what I mean? Like I, yes. I feel like he continually comes down on the everything will be all right if we hold on to our childhood dreams. Yes. Side yeah. of the argument. Right. And like I said, I sort of figured that that's the stage at which you're like, okay, I can sign off on this. Uh, what yeah, I, very much. Yeah. Uh, what is weird is, and this is going to sound like a really odd jump. Mm-hmm. So bear with me. The parts that felt the most Morrisonian mm-hmm. in the wrenches. Uh, reminded me of Twin Peaks and then later on the Too Many Cooks sketch. Mm, mm-hmm. Because there is a part in both of those and in the Wrenches mm-hmm. where intellectually I know exactly what they're doing yeah. and I can appreciate the joke. Right. But there is part of me that is just so fucking creeped out. Yeah. That I can't get, like, I can't get over the creeped outness. I can't get over the, the visceral unease. Right. Well, uh, I, I'm like it was. Yes. It, it was actually the too many cooks thing that really sort of oh, crystallized yeah. this for me. Mm-hmm. Because I was watching, it, I was like, "Haha! Oh, look, there's the guy with the machete." And, but it's the part, and I'm sure everyone's seen this. So I'm not spoiling anything. It's the part where he is killing everyone, and then the captions come up, and the captions are screwed up in the video. Oh yeah. And that freaks me the fuck out. Isn't that such a good touch? I cannot explain, but really, really, really unnerved me. Yeah. Like it, it, that was the point where it went from this is funny to this is actually creeping me out. Yeah. yeah. And it reminded me of parts of Twin Peaks with the Black Lodge and with Bob. Yes. Where I, I, I was creeped out. Yeah. Like, I was like, I know totally what you're doing, but this is very uncomfortable for me to watch. Right. And where the Wrenchies made an emotional connection mm-hmm. with me, it was that sense of unease that just made me uncomfortable with the book and not like this is a great successful book because i'm having this reaction but in the sense of i don't know why i'm still reading this this is making me really uncomfortable i'm not getting enough pleasure from this and the only thing that's keeping me reading is you know it's it's a complete book Mm -hmm. and i'm at that point it was like and i'm so close to the end right i i should just finish right at the same time, if I knew, if I didn't think I was going to talk to you about it on the podcast, I probably wouldn't have finished. Right. I, I actually, that's sort of why I think I wrote you at one point being like, remember, I want you to talk about the Richies. Cause I was like, he's not gonna, he's gonna try and, 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 and scrape away from it. So listeners, depending on where you stand, uh, the oh, Richies is either totally the book for you or yeah. absolutely positively not. And I'm not wrapping things up. I just want to say for those. No, no, but, like, but it's, it's what's, I would say as well that, I am. I think for the majority of people who listen to this, yeah, it's something they should read. Yeah, uh, because it touches on so much of what we keep talking about. Yes, uh, and is a different approach to those ideas. Very much. That so. If nothing else, it's a very instructive read. Mm-hmm. Whether you have the the positive reaction that you do, mm-hmm. or you have the negative reaction that I do, right. it's. I mean, it's definitely a book that should be read. It's. It's. In a, a year that I'm not sure has been amazingly strong mm-hmm. for new work, it, right. it's definitely something that I'd be like, yes, this, this is something that you should be picking up. This yeah. is something that you should look at. Good, good. I'm I'm glad that you feel that way despite your reservations about it. Because it is – because I, I finished it so depressed and low in so many ways <laughs> and yet so um, – so moved and so convinced of like just what a massive achievement it is. Cause to me, it's more successful than 
the two issues I read of Casey's Captain Victory, it's more successful than the Omega the Unknown book. I mean, it's, oh, it's definitely more successful than Omega the Unknown, and it's too early to say about Casey's Captain Victory. But mm-hmm. I think you're probably right. Yeah, um, I actually caught up with that yesterday. Uh, it's now three issues in, and it's I don't I don't know where it's going anymore. I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I. I very much worry at this point that it's going to end up being a very pretty mm-hmm. uh, obscure book, if that makes sense. Like a book that you'll be like, huh, if you really like Kirby and you kind of like Casey, then sure, as opposed to, you know, people should definitely read this. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, also, yeah. It's, 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 if with every successive issue, it definitely feels like a book that people should read as a collection. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, in large part because the experience of reading it right. uh, gets incredibly disrupted by some of the Dynamite House ads. <laughs> wow. I, uh, Jesus. Yeah, I could see that. Would be I mean, it really crazy. does. You're like, I'm right. I'm right in this, like, you know, Casey and Fox and Nathan Fox are, are very much, you know, um, doing a garish recreation of the 70s head comics. Mm-hmm. And then you turn the page and you're like, and there's J. Scott Campbell doing a Warlord of Mars cover where Deja Thoris has got her tits out. Exactly. Return Turn of the tits. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it really does break the, the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm very, I'm, I'm increasingly conflicted about Captain Victory, which is a shame. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I think, I think you're right. I think the Ranchies is... I mean, it, it's – here's the thing. I didn't like it, but it's a great book. Yeah. Well, that – and that's what I was kind of hoping. That, well, I mean, I was hoping that you would love it, but I kind of – I, for me, myself, I'm sort of like, it's going to be hard for Graham to just be like, oh, it's terrible and, you know, I mean well, – No, I, I can't say it's terrible. It's it's, it's amazing, but yeah. it's – I say that in large part based on this uh, cold, you know, formally it's fascinating – the illustrations are beautiful. Yeah. The, you know, I, the, the, not a, uh, I couldn't put it down. Holy shit. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it really is like, right. uh, you know, this is a very difficult book for me to get through. Yeah. Formally, it's, it's, I mean, it is. It's just technically an amazing book. Yeah. Um, but, but it is, but it like, is very much about this. It very distinctly is, it's very distinctly committed to, to tracing out a very specific sort of dilemma uh, about despair, you know? Yeah, but, yeah, and, yes, and I think one of the reasons I, it did not work for me in a way that it will work for others mm-hmm. is that I do not have that relationship with dis- with despair. Right, right, right. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it at times felt like, uh, it was speaking in a language that I do not recognize, mm-hmm. or at least, or that I do not speak. Yeah, yeah, I can see. Um, and so, there was an element of. I guess what I guess what I'm saying is, in many ways, I feel like I have failed this book. Other than this book has failed me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I I am not faulting this book at all. I I it throughout the whole thing, I feel like it. Is a book that I could not, I did not have an emotional connection with. Right. But that is in no way the fault of the book. Right. Well, or, or I, I also feel, and maybe this is unfair to you, I feel in some ways the emotional connection is one that you do not want to nurture, you know, and I, and I can't, 
I can't I, I'm blame not you sure for that. that. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if that's necessarily it as much as I think it might be one that I do not have the experience or skill set to nurture in addition to wanting or not wanting. Well, that maybe. I mean, that could be. I mean, that really does boil down to a certain question. You know what I mean? Like, I, or a certain, there are certain types of people. And one of the things that is both surprising to me and unsurprising to me uh, is the extent to which I am someone who can watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a, and take comfort in it. You know what I mean? Like that. Oh, I, I totally know. I, and I can't do that. Yes, exactly. And that's kind of what I mean. Where, which part of that comes from a, it's innately in each of us or depending on what our life things are that we picked up. Um, it becomes, it becomes very difficult. And I feel in some ways it is that itself is, um, a subject at the heart of the Wrenchies, you know, I think that his, in, in a way that Fall Rimple makes absolutely 100% as uncomfortable uh, a question to consider as possible because he, he is absolutely 100% committed to the idea of goodness, um, in the character of Hollis, uh, and yet Hollis is absolutely the, most difficult character to want to emotionally connect to, I suppose, if you see what I'm saying, at least for me, you know, you'll have to unpack that a bit. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand what you're talking about. Okay. So, uh, this might also help the listeners. The, the wrenchies is set up, um, almost like an onion skin in that each chapter sort of has a different layer to it. And then towards the end of the book, I suppose all the layers sort of meet. Um, and the layer that is perhaps at the core is a kid named Hollis who wears, who in a, in a book of, you know, sort of heroes is a comic book reading kid, um, who wears a superhero suit, who is, is is a very young child. There is the there is depending on how Dalrymple is presenting the character, he may even be developmentally disabled in that he is somewhat slower than the kids around him in his neighborhood. He reads comics, he prays to God, he sees ghosts and then is worried that the ghosts are immediately assumes them to be real and then spends a lot of time praying to make sure that his soul is not possessed or corrupted by them. And then later on ends up stealing a comic book when his mom won't buy it for him. Um, so he is basically a big ball of vulnerability. Um, Mm -hmm. and at every point in the book, the difference in some ways where he is in his world before he crosses through the dimensional machine that takes him into the world of the Wrenchies, um, is that even the kids who sort of kind of accept him also sort of reject him as being weird and mm-hmm. and don't quite accept him. Whereas 
the wrenchies, which in some ways is the, to me, the wrenchies is so, the, the reason why I thought you might connect to it, Graham, is to me, the wrenchies is totally the experience of reading Chris Claremont's X-Men comics, you know, mm. circa like 19, between 1984 and 1988. You know, like I'm not paying attention, but maybe later than that, I guess, because it's precisely it seems to me the era where Rob Liefeld comes in and but everything in the X-Men world skews incredibly dark and there's a constant sense of being at war. And yet there is the amazing teen clubhouse where everyone accepts each other including Hollis, Hollis, um, whatever else is going on with the kids that seems marginal, sketchy, disreputable, and potentially corrupt about them. All of them go on to accept Hollis and Hollis's virtues as, as, you know, sacrosanct, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and so it, it's very clear that to the book itself, Hollis is very clearly the hero. The narrator stand in towards the end of the book refers to Hollis as the kid that he should have been, that he should yes. have, you know. Um, but and, that's because Hollis is innocent. And, and the right. whole book, he, I'm, okay, here's a question. Am I reading this into the book that the book is a framework about Sherwood getting sexually abused and then Seeing Hollis, who I totally read as developmentally challenged, mm-hmm. I didn't even think it was it was up for debate. Right. Um, but seeing this kid as the innocence that he never had, right, and constructing a narrative around him, yeah, uh, that is about the importance of innocence and the importance of innocence being allowed to exist as opposed to taken away from him. Yes, like I, uh, it's, th- yeah. the whole thing with the cave at the start mm-hmm. struck me as very much a metaphor for sexual abuse. Oh, very much so. Yeah, um, very, very heavily. And and so Hollis is allowed to be innocent not only because he is developmentally challenged, mm-hmm. but because no one, even within the ranches themselves, mm-hmm. uh, considers him anything other than a child. And other than any uh, something where in his innocence is his defining quality, mm-hmm. and so he he does not uh, get placed in a situation, a sexual situation, which Sherwood and potentially Dalrymple sees as the the inevitable corruption of everyone else. Okay, well, there's there's a few things in there, of course. One, I I think by and large you're right, although I feel that Dalrymple very deftly and explicitly moves between um, the the sexual abuse and more importantly the spectacle of violence. You know, the idea that this is something that you take in through your eyes um, and that all of these kids, even as they're all as all of the kids are being celebrated for being, you know, brave and spectacularly skilled in battle and violent and and unafraid of the shadow men, like their lack of fear and their bravado is the part that sort of makes them worth celebrating and what makes uh, superheroes worth celebrating. And yet. I think for Dalrymple, the 
the violence at the core of that is part of that innate corruption. So I think that there's a situation where because Hollis does is not exposed to these sorts of situations, and I and I do think that it's worth pointing out that there's a little bit. Well, I'll back that up. Um, I think that I think that <laughs> Hollis is for one thing he's he's innocent, but he also is shown like whenever possible explicitly as having good intentions and for his ability to feel empathy for others. And that actually trumping the sort of self centeredness that leads to the narcissism when we encounter Sherwood later, you know, that, that is, that is part of the core of what's wrong with him is the, the trap of self like Hollis's innocence is tied to his ability to feel empathy for others. Maybe, but it is also something that exists and it's worth mentioning that it does exist despite the fact that it looks as if Hollis himself had some sort of sexual encounter in the course of the book. Um, Although, because whatever happened with him and the two other boys in the bathroom that he ends up leaving his underwear on the floor about, that he can't, whether it's the fact that he can't remember or it's the fact that he engaged in it with his peers, he is in a situation that runs somewhat closer to the inferences uh, of, of the episode that, that, uh, that, that um, Sherwood ends up in. You know, mm-hmm. although different, yeah. although different. So I, I feel that there is a lot of things there that that are. I, I think there is, as you point out, there is actually another level that points to the way in which the the Wrenchies, the book, the Wrenchies, is in fact a book, not by Dalrymple, but by Sherwood Breadcoat. I think is his name. Um, you know, a, like you said, about seeing someone about that innocence. Um, and, and about the idea of trying, trying to get back his, his life and also his death, um, that mm-hmm. way. It's listeners. If you haven't read this book, you might think Jeff and I are insane at this point. Yes. Or at least, or at least that we are describing a book that is terrifying to read. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not. Yeah. Uh, here's like, I I didn't love it, and I keep wanting to come back and be like, listeners, you should read this book. Yes, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. it's a weird thing. Like, right. the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, no, more people should read this book. Yeah. Well, because I do feel there, like... There's a lot to it. There's a, a lot there's such it. a ton to it, and it is and done it so well. it feels much longer than it is, if oh, that yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's only 200-odd pages long. Yeah. And it feels far denser. Oh, Completely. By by the time you get to the end, I mean, I read it. Oh God! By the time you get to the end, it's it's ridiculous. Especially the the uh, I guess you'd call it a post credit scene. Mm -hmm. Yes, the 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 sequence after the acknowledgments. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's yeah, it's it's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I mean, how long is it? It's okay. It's three hundred and three pages. It looks like. Yeah. Uh, Let's see here. Three hundred two. Three hundred three. Yeah. Exactly. But um, part of that is the acknowledgments, I guess, 302. Um, right. Good call. Yeah, it's it, – it, yeah, there's a lot to this book, people. <laughs> I mean it really is. For people who like a good, chewy read – I mean that's I, – I thought what Graham was going to say is that uh, even though it sounds like we're completely hallucinating, is we're not. I think, I think if you read the book um, 
uh, it's pretty well, easy to I see the stuff that we're talking all, yeah, about I is being it's in all there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, part of me is like, well, Jeff, the violence is also a metaphor for sexual abuse. But, you know, again, <laughs> that's, you know, that's one of those rabbit hole things where you, you could then right. read that inference into anything in that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like when he, when the adult Sherwood meets the woman on the train and, and the child Sherwood is watching and then talks about himself being a creep and a loser. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, how much does that, feed in because he's then he is child sherwood is absent of the male gaze at the same time that adult sherwood is apologizing for his inner male gaze yes right you know and so you have this weird uh hyper meta Mm -hmm. response to to something that's a shame on top of a shame yes i think that in a weird way Child Sherwood sees adult Sherwood's shame as part of the being creepy. Yes. Right. You know, and so there, which on one sense makes sense mm-hmm. because to a kid, it might be better just to own that, that initial response. Right. But as an adult, you know, it's, it's, you really could go down rabbit holes and, and oh, absolutely, and it's very with this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it really is. There's points where, especially in the section on Sherwood, where Dalrymple makes a point to draw specific analogies between the people in Sherwood's life and s- situations that we've seen or that have been intimated at in the book, and then completely subverts them. You know that, and like I said, the un. It's so important, the unreliability of what anyone takes from the book but yourself, you know, and how that sort of ties into uh, certain spiritual tenets, I guess. I think towards the end, uh, not only does Dalrymple force that upon the reader, Mm -hmm. like you actively get the book is contradicting itself. The book is is referring to itself. But also that speeds up the closer you get to the end. Yes. So yes, it, it feels as if you are going through an experience and then that experience is revealed to have uh, an alternate reading. Yes. Or or a flip side. Right. But that that accelerates throughout the entire book. So that by the time you're getting to the end, there is a sense as a reader mm-hmm. that you are heading towards some some endpoints that is more than just the end of the book. Yes. That you're speeding towards some sort of of epiphany or realization yeah. or ascension towards a higher truth about mm-hmm. everything that you have just read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think as as myself, Dylan completely veers away from that mm. and, and avoids avoids closure from that which i actually find myself appreciating yes i think i would have had more problems if you know at the end of the book was him being like and here's what to think about it yes yeah but, yeah exactly I, no. I can mm-hmm. also see how for some people also that might seem frustrating yeah completely i i was i was frustrated when i came across that sort of ending in say uh david foster wallace's infinite jest Pleased with it when it happened in Gravity's Rainbow, and still incredibly intrigued when I came across it in Phil Dick's Divine Invasion. So, it it really can go one of several ways, I think, depending on your 
Uh, I, I, uh, I think it's better than your expectations of the book. Yeah, maybe the expectations that that the author builds into the brings to the book for you. Because I was going to say, like, you know, re, re, you know, it's sort of to taste. But just saying that I had three books that had sort of similar, a very exactly. similar it's sort of taste. Ending. Yeah, but you know, also your taste entirely depends on what you are reading at the time. Exactly. Yeah, and your headspace. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I what I think is very compelling about the ranches is that it is at once amazingly comic booky mm-hmm. uh it's i talked before about like it speaks in a language that i don't don't understand or don't speak mm-hmm. uh i was meaning an, an emotional language i guess yeah visually mm-hmm. and formally it is mm-hmm. very much a comic yeah do you know what i mean like he's, he's very plugged into panel to panel progression mm-hmm. panel layer on the page to uh not only as a visual key, yes. but also as a way of expressing time and the distance between certain events. Mm-hmm. Uh, his use of uh, speech balloons, I think, is, is oh, yeah. wonderful. His use of even chapter breaks, I think, mm-hmm. is just really good and very impactful. Yeah. Um, but the subject matter of the book is wrapped up in comic trappings, mm-hmm. but is, in execution, very uncomic booky. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, part of me is like, I can't say that in a comic podcast. Everyone will kill me. There's no such thing as comic bookie. But you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the, the, the ambiguity he yes. embraces. Yes. The ambiguity and even the form of, I would, uh, interestingly enough, I appreciated that more in the Wrenchies. One of the things that actually bothers me about Jonathan Lithem and, uh, uh, Michael Chabon, which I, I know I've mentioned in a previous episode, so it's me kicking a dead horse, is the way in which they have to sort of undermine the comic bookiness of what they're doing, even as they are supposedly embracing it. Like, there's always the embrace that's sort of holding it at arm's length at the same time. That, that Yeah, there's, a, there's this weird, like, I really appreciate this stuff, you guys. Yeah, exactly. You know? With this, there's an implied, but I know better. Right, but I know better. Like, I, yeah, just just kind of an idea of there's a little bit of a, a a strange necessity whenever this stuff is involved to kind of, yeah, put it a little bit at arm's length and say, like, yeah, I love it, add a remove. It is the most amazing thing, although, you know? And yeah, I it's, think, the most, it's the most amazing thing that you wouldn't expect because it's a comic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even even after establishing all their bona fides and everything. And so one of the things that I, I deeply enjoyed about the Wrenchies is by virtue of it actually being a comic book, um, it is like the proof is in the pudding. You know what I mean? It's Dalrymple is committing to the medium in a specific way that I feel gives him a lot more leeway for me to be able to critique, I suppose, the comic bookiness of the dystopian of the, 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 you know, kid superhero teams of the violence, everything that's, that's posed in there ends up being scrutinized and criticized. Um, not from a sense not from a sense of I've got to hold this medium at arm's length because we know that it's not 
you know, it's, it's literature, but it's never going to really quite hit the highest rank of literature, you know, kind of thing, you know? Mm. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, this is, this is very much a comic. This is a comic informed by the history of comics. Yeah. It's, it's not a, uh, you know, I'm just popping in here for some weird credibility. Yes. You know, and I said this on Twitter after I, after I, uh, read this book and, uh, in a way which was sort of unfortunate because what I said on Twitter was first, and I absolutely believe this, like the, all of my various bitchings about first, second, like this undoes a ton of them. Cause I think it is such a, a really, a first, it's a really brave book for them to publish because it is so, um, it is it is so sort of outside their sphere or rather takes the things that they are doing. And I think really, really pushes at the envelope of that. Um, and I also feel, and this, here's where things come in really unfortunate, you know, as I tweeted, like, you know, that the wrenchies by being a first, second book is going to save the life of some weird kid, uh, in a way that it wouldn't, if it had been an ad house book, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I I agree, but I can also see how that's going to get you in trouble. Well, let's just say the only person who retweeted that was the head of Ad House Books. So I felt like a real dickhead. Um, Somewhere Chris Pitzer is like, I hate you, Jeff He, he was just like, I'm just going to retweet this. I'm like, ah! And I, it was tough because there is that point where you're like, you know that I mean that you're one of the few publishers that would actually publish content this daring, right? Right? You do see this as a compliment, right? I'm you didn't actually respond by like by saying, you know it's because – you both have entirely different distribution bases and something published by first second is more likely to be read by your core audience. Yeah. 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 I, I exactly, you know, because I sort of feel like that's, I, I feel that that's sort of self-evident in the snark. The fact that he retweeted it without comment, I was like, or, you know, so yeah, that was, that kind of <laughs> well done. Hey, welcome to my life. That's the sort of thing I normally do. Yeah, that is true. I is that <laughs> absolutely right. Wow, I've joined the Graham McMillan Club. Like, hey, kids, want to offend people you admire and or get them unfollowed immediately by them? Exactly. What to find out that this person who you think is kind of cool took a joke the wrong way and will hate you forevermore? That's right. Will actually have people threaten to slug you after the fact for years? To come? Yeah. So yeah. the Wrenchies, everybody, you, you seriously think of it. If you want a challenging book, if you're the sort of person that likes to read something that kind of like, you know, comes at you, um, mm -hmm. as, as Graham says, like, it's great to hear that Graham, that even, even though you didn't enjoy it, you're in that sense, glad you read it. And you know, what's great as well, because it's first second part of me automatically thinks of it as a uh, young adult fiction. Yeah. And I think thinking about as young adult fiction mm -hmm. is especially daring because mm -hmm. I did think mm -hmm. like this is a Letham book and Letham isn't young adult. Letham yeah. is read by, you know, 30 to 50 year old white liberals. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. got a very specific base. Sure. Same with yeah. Siobhan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Um, and I think there really is a chance that someone's going to read the ranchies yes. and it's going to mean everything to them. Yeah. That's what I think too, because it is going to end up being, 
you know, shelves right next to, you know, on the library shelf well, next yes, to, it's going to be you know, next, Kid Emperor or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's going to be yeah. next to Boxers and Saints and it's going to be next to uh, the Faith Aaron Hicks books and mm-hmm. and things that are great and I yes. really like but are nothing like this book. Yeah, exactly. Th- this book is definitely designed to be a subversive book and – First, second, publishing it, I think all but guarantees that it is going to end up being subversive in that way. And I think that is extraordinarily um, awesome of them. You know, I really do. I think that that is that is something to be celebrated. So um, and I will try and keep it in mind when the next copy of Battling Boy comes out and is too small or <laughs> it's in black and white gray tones. Like, I don't know what's, what was that book? The, the book, <laughs> what's her name? It's not. Oh, the, the Aurora West. Uh, what's her name? The Aurora West book. Yeah. The, the Aurora the West book, right? So I was shocked, Graham. I have to say, here I am turning I, around. I, I just, I just read that this week. and totally enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. But didn't you think that the, didn't you think they skimped a little on the presentation? Don't you think? No, that it was I like... actually really, really like the format for it. Really, I like the size. I like the the. I liked everything. I like size. I like the paper sock. I like the gray zone, and I love the price point. Okay, I will agree with you on the price point, but I actually thought that the when I first saw a copy of it, which was at Comics Experience about five months before. Um, it was a, an advanced reader's copy and you know how advanced reader's copies are. Sometimes they, oh, yeah, sometimes they're nothing. Like I've got an advanced reader copy of the first, uh, Darwin Cook Hunter book mm-hmm. and it is, so you know how Hunter is a two-tone book, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the advanced reader's copy is a different tone. Yeah. It see. is fluorescent blue. Right. It almost makes it an unreadable book. Yeah, so I'm just totally like, I got the book. They're like, oh, it's kind of neat that they did this. Everything about this is sort of a cheap, cranked-out galley feel to it. You know, I kind of flipped through it. It was like, oh, that's interesting. It makes it very portable. You can just slip it into your back pocket. And then when the book actually came out, I'm like, holy shit, that's... That was the book! That was the book. This is the formatting. This is the... Yeah, I'm still not I'm still no, not I, crazy about it. I really, really liked it. I actually, to be fair, I liked the format and everything about it more than I liked the story. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that was actually kind of a bummer, too, as well. Is As I... It very much felt like a... Cashin is too cynical, but a Cashin to Battling Boy. I, an entirely unnecessary edition. Yeah, it it seemed kind of unnecessary, and there were one or two things that rubbed me the wrong way on it. In a way that, fortunately for all involved, meaning you and the listeners, Graham, I can't remember, and so we'll just have to dismiss. <laughs> so, but, well, uh, let's move on then. If, yes. if nothing else, it provided a good bridge for us to stop talking about the ranches, which was, you know, an intense conversation. Yes. And something else, because I can't think of anything else we have to talk about that's as intense. Oh, for sure. It's it's all kind of gravy from here. Um, is there any sort of modern comics or modern comic news you want to get into before we talk Avengers? Or should we just move uh, right into Let's Let's Avengers. just talk it. I'm, I'm looking at my pile and see if there's anything that I really, really want to talk about. Uh, Superior Iron Man. Did you read Superior Iron Man? I did not. I did not. I... Uh, there, it is rare, uh, in part because I get a bunch of comps, 
mm-hmm. and in part because I'm a cynical bastard. Right. For me to see a lot of people getting excited about a comic and think, I've got to pick that up. Right. It's really rare. Um, yesterday, on the social medias, people were raving about the first issue of Superior Iron Man. Hmm. Raving. You know, it's such a smart satire of San Francisco's tech culture, they said. And I was like, I like Tom Taylor. I would like to read a smart satire of San Francisco. I should pick it up. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to those people, Jeff. It's a superhero comic. <laughs> it is. I, I, I shit you not. If there is a smart satire of, Super, of San Francisco and Spear Iron Man issue one, I must have missed those pages. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The satire basically consists of assholes will be assholes. And there's a Lord of the Fly mentality between the haves and the haves nots. Mm-hmm. And that is neither smart mm-hmm. nor particularly insightful. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. there's nothing. Not only is there nothing San Francisco about it, it also seems very counter San Francisco. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, like there, it 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 does not feel like a San Francisco culture that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could totally see it as an LA culture, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. much. Hmm. Uh, it feels very Southern Californian, but not Northern Californian to me. Hmm. Uh, but I was, uh, it's, it's, it's fine. It's a solid first issue. <laughs> uh, I have, I have, and it turns out an astounding disinterest in, look, it's Tony Stark, he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for people who want to read that, it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just, I, I, I'm so rarely swayed by people online going, this is amazing, that I, I, I'm kind of annoyed that I fell for it this time. Well, again, sometimes it has to do with the talent. I mean, Tom Taylor uh, has done some surprisingly great stuff on Injustice. You know, I still have such oh, yeah, fond yeah, memories yeah, of that first trade and the second one. It's so much better than it should be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so that's it. Kind of like he was one where it was like people were saying crazy things and I'm like, come on, people, you're just you are you are making crazy noises with your face. And then reading it and going, you know, I wouldn't go all the way up uh to where these people are talking they're at least a little crazy, but that is much closer than I ever thought they would have come. So yeah, I have to uh, give him credit you know so i, I kind of see that i kind of see that interestingly enough um i picked up uh the first two issues of uh the winter soldier um you know alish's title se- the second issue of the winter soldier is another one i forgot to pick up ah uh, see yeah i, I haven't was, read them I, yet I, oh i was gonna say i i i'm genuinely expecting you to be bowled over and fall in love at least by the first issue I'm expecting you to just be like, yes, this is absolutely the kind of weird head trip superhero comics that I am into. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So far, I'm a little, I'm not all the way through the first issue. So we'll see where, we'll see where we go. Maybe it's that classic, like, I've been told I'm going to love this and then therefore I'm being a contrarian, but, um, Oh yeah, yeah, that's always a problem. I, yeah. I have, I have that as well. Yeah, I exactly. Love this, you tell me. Okay yeah. then, just watch when I don't. Right. It, we'll see how how things – I mean maybe by the time we get to the end of the first issue, the, the, I'll have my feelings you know, a little more one way or the other. But currently it feels a little pat so far in a way that um, that I'm not necessarily loving. But it also may be as someone who skipped the entire bulk of Original Sin, you know – 
walking into this idea, which I've sort of heard talked about online, um, and then sort of seeing the way that it's playing out is uh, is odd. Let's put it that way. It's 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 uh, there. There it, it may take a couple of things to gel, but like I said, I picked up the first two issues. Like I said, Actually, I'll probably get to issue three. So let's talk about odd for a second. Sure. Um, I also picked up the first issue of Captain America and the Mighty Avengers. The mm. the the Mighty Avengers relaunch. Mm-hmm. And it's an Axis crossover. Mm-hmm. Which means that the first issue features, really centers around the new Captain America. But because of Axis, he's a dick. Right. Uh, and Luke Cage is also a dick. Which is not, like, he doesn't really feature in it that much, and it's not made clear either. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just struck me as such an odd choice for a first issue. Do you know what I mean? It's like, hey kids, here's your first issue. It's going to set the scene for the the series, except it's really not. Well, that's uh, I, is Al Ewing still on the book? Yeah, which and is here's wonderful. The thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, but I think that the first issues of uh, the previous Mighty Avengers series, yes, which were also a crossover, yep. which were the the Infinity crossover, yes, you could tell what the book was going to be. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like it very much managed to juggle. The needs of the crossover and the needs of the book itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas this issue felt amazingly overbalanced mm-hmm. in favor of, hey, it's the new Captain America. He's an idiot. <laughs> not even like he's not an idiot because it's not as if he's he's stupid. It's that he is essentially he is um, entirely unsympathetic. He's Judge Dredd. Right. He's right. this entirely unsympathetic hardliner. Mm-hmm. Who is concerned about you know stopping crime his way and has no empathy with mm-hmm. anyone for anything? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a first issue, it, it I don't know. It feels really weird. It's like yeah. I guess I'm going to have to keep buying this book until this crossover is done to really have a sense of what this book is going to be like. Exactly. No, it's true. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's great that they are giving a second try to relaunch Mighty Avengers with higher sales. Yes. It absolutely bothers me that the way they're doing it is, as you point out, sort of something that that clear that puts any number of hurdles uh, between the chance of it actually succeeding in that regard, you know, because you either have, you've got three scenarios. One, you've got people who actually like the book because the characters are hardcore dicks and are therefore going to jump off when the premise ends and presumably they're not anymore. B, the people who pick it up are not happy that the characters are hardcore dicks and jump off, not wanting to wait around to see how the situation plays out. Or C, you have a book where everyone manages to stay hardcore dicks forever, which seems unlikely. So it it doesn't, it doesn't, it's one of those weird, like, Marvel, the, the editorial being like, we really like this book, let's do this Hail Mary pass. You know, and I, 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 it sounds to me like it didn't really work for you, which is interesting in a way, if only because I feel like, um, more often than not, as a comic book writer, Al Ewing is pretty much, is kind of my like, ah, what can't he pull off? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's kind well, of like. And here's the thing I'm not necessarily sure he's not pulling this off. It, mm-hmm. Again, might just be, it's such a weird scenario. 
Right. And I am instinctively against here is a superhero, he is a jerk. Well, and I think for the most part, I, I sort of feel, despite the fact that he's done a lot of Judge Dredd, he also knows, like, he had a very strong sense of what was entailed in a Marvel comic, you know? I mean, yeah. the, the the fact that, you know, he had two issues of, you know, Age of Ultron, super depressing, you know, like, okay, it's the future and everything's terrible and it's a murder world, go. And he told stories about, you know, hope and heroism in ways that were incredibly affecting. There is part of me is kind of like, oh, it's interesting that for whatever reason he didn't work at subverting the the negativity even as he was presenting it but you know maybe that's the uh, maybe, or maybe, yeah maybe that's yeah. down the line right um but it's 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 weird it really like i i honestly finished the book and was like i don't know what i feel about that book <laughs> <laughs> you know when you're like right. that again that was that was very well done mm-hmm. but i'm not necessarily sure i know what i just read right and while I'm asking you about random Marvel questions, mm-hmm. uh, I want to throw this idea at you and see how you react. Okay. Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. the Kelly Sue Captain Marvel. Yes. It's just Spider-Girl with a better social media presence, isn't it? <laughs> huh. It's an ultimately marginal selling comic. Right. That is nonetheless a figurehead for Marvel. Yeah. For political reasons more than anything. Yeah. That will constantly escape cancellation. Uh, why? Why is it not Spider Girl? I guess is what I want. Right. Well, Spider Girl had a surprisingly good run. You know, it, well, had it a went on for good run. It went on for what? I mean, it it reached a hundred issues. Or am I completely yes. matched? No, 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 no. If not beyond. So, like I said, I think I it had its day. It would be wonderful in a way to see it continue. But I think Marvel is doing. With a lot of, with perhaps too much of an optimistic spin on it, there's part of me that would like to think that Marvel is, for for a company that almost never plays the long game as far as publishing is concerned. That they're playing the long game? Yeah, that they're actually playing the long game. They're going to keep this character around. By the time the character comes out as a movie, if we believe that all happens and it happens directly there's going to be a nice, you know, a decent number of trades that are also at the same time completely relatively self-contained and non-contradictory that people are going to be able to dig into and that this is much better uh, for ever, for all involved than when they were cranking it precisely what people were saying that they should have been doing instead of cranking out like, you know, Nine million Captain America one shots in advance of the Captain America movie just to flood the shelves with product. You know, mm-hmm. this this is all in my mind because uh, the Ms. Marvel news last week that it was the best selling collection and graphic novel in the the direct market for mm-hmm. October, mm-hmm. Uh, which came days after uh, I think it was Ellie Pyle. Someone in Marvel finally confirmed that Ms. Marvel is also the best-selling digital title for Marvel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And apparently by far. Right. Ms. Marvel already in print significantly outsells Captain Marvel. Yes. And it struck me that Ms. Marvel is everything Captain Marvel is supposed to be. Right. 
Except it actually sells. <laughs> yes. No, but you're saying Captain Marvel doesn't sell. No, no, absolutely. Captain Marvel does not seem to sell very well at all. I mean, at this point, it is already pretty much at where the last volume was, Mm -hmm. which is 20,000, 21,000, something like that. Like, right. Like, it would be cancelled if it was any other book. If it was any other book, absolutely. Um, But Marvel's fucked because Marvel can't do any of its normal tricks other than just relaunch the book because they can't get rid of Kelly Sue. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. They, they just can't. The only way they can get rid of Kelly Sue is uh, she would have to voluntarily walk off the book. Right. And Basically, even if she yeah. did, mm-hmm. people would still say that Marvel replaced her. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and so Marvel is stuck with this low-selling book that yeah. has a very visible presence. Yes. And I don't know. I just I feel like this weird situation where this is happening. And Captain Marvel is being held up as like, this is the vanguard, this is the figurehead of our, you know, our commitment to diversity. Right. Whereas you've got Ms. Marvel that is significantly outselling the book. Right. And has actually caught on with a larger audience. Yeah. And within the drag market and outside the drag market. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, certainly I get, I get outside the direct market, if you if you believe where the digital, if you think of the digital marketplace as like the new newsstand. But again, if the collection is the number one book in the, the oh, that's true. You're right. Thing. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess initially I was thinking, when does Marvel recognize Ms. Marvel as what Captain Marvel is supposed to be? And that then turned into, what do you do with Captain Marvel? Right. Like, wh- what do you do with that title? Yeah. You've kind of got to keep it going now. Now that they've announced the film, they've got to keep it going. Sure. Yeah, I I I don't know what to tell you, Graham. I mean, because I think that you are uh you are by and large, you're absolutely right. And part of me is like, eh, you know, I think that although Marvel doesn't like publishing stuff at 20,000 copies. You know <laughs> what like I mean? Marvel, should have just finished. I don't think Marvel likes publishing stuff. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great. The end. Uh, I, I think, I think that there's, I think that, uh, you know, 20,000 copies is not, is not going broke for Marvel. I think it's far less aggressive than what they, you know, want, but that they can make the argument. There's no reason why they can't have two books, you know, that one of which happens to be sort of, a quote unquote critical darling, you know, um, and the other of which actually being the, the seller. I, you know, in a way I, that, that sort of. I agree, although that's never been the way Marvel's worked before. Well, sure. Absolutely. But there's. But also, so you keep Captain Marvel alive, okay? And Captain right. Marvel. Yeah. Basically hovers around 20,000. Sure. Long term. Yeah. Does that then mean the other, I, never mind. I, I was going to answer my own question. <laughs> I was going to say, does that mean that in doing so, you create a situation where all the other books that get cancelled and sell higher, mm-hmm. uh, there is an argument by fans of favoritism and and bias. But right. but you do, because if you're keeping Captain Marvel alive at 20,000 20, right. permanently... That's what you're doing. It is favoritism and bias. Well, uh, and it's favoritism bias for a good reason. Yeah, and see, and that's where it boils down to. I think that's where you start being safe, is that idea of if a book is being kept around 
despite others that sell, you know, higher or canceled. And your bias is you actually want to engender characters with female creators, strong female characters. That's a hell of a lot better than the idea that it's like, oh, this dude wrote for Howard Stern, you know, which was the <laughs> excuse that they used like 10 years ago, you know? So I, I think in that sense, it's it's not something that I feel like there's there's always there's always darlings, there's always favorites, and there's always going to be you know a system that is going to be rigged in favor of them as much as possible. But I think that that's the um, uh, I, I I just I I'm so I'm kind of happy seeing that actually be the case for things like. Some, something like Captain Marvel. Now, they, they may figure out some... They, when this isn't working, they may decide to launch Captain America and the Defenders, you know, a year from now. And then they'll keep Kelly Sue on the title, but they'll have her leading a team book with the characters from the upcoming Netflix thing. Like, who knows how artificial... Oh, God, that would be... Right, exactly. Spectacular and terrible at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we don't necessarily know how or where those things are going to end up, I suppose. But Yeah, I'm just – I I feel that Captain Marvel is simultaneously a success for Marvel Mm -hmm. and a real problem for Marvel. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think Marvel I think Marvel's kind of in a very problematic state as far as I'm concerned. I just don't see not that I've been paying much attention, but I don't there's maybe one or two titles that seem to be selling high, I think, but isn't everything else pretty much back at its pre Marvel now uh thresholds? I, uh I think there's probably some stuff that's significantly higher. But the other thing is, you can just, like, what Marvel now and everything since has taught them is you can just keep relaunching these books. Oh, well, they 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 thought that well before. I think the things that they're trying, that they've learned from things like Marvel now and some of the events are, if you relaunch it and then people don't show up for it, you just ship them those goddamn copies you know, and then you insist that they that those copies count in the marketplace. And as far as I can tell, the marketplace goes, yeah, okay, sure. You know, if you say so. But I, I feel like the the relaunch when you, as you've pointed out many times before, when you look at a title like Captain America and the number of times that it's been relaunched just in the last decade. Uh, to half decade. You know what I mean? Like, Captain America is on volume seven right now. Yeah. That is, that is clearly a lesson that they learned a while ago, you know? Well, so. Captain America was also in trouble for the longest time of Marvel. Because think about it, before Brubaker, yeah. you had the, the Johnny Ryber run. Mm-hmm. Which was a that huge was, mess. Um, yeah, a misfire to be generous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that had relaunched from whatever came before it, which I guess was Mark Wade, maybe? Uh, maybe. Maybe. I, I, I'm actually pretty confused about that because, but yeah, I think that probably sounds about right. I don't know. Yeah, I, I like, the, the, there was a, definitely a period in the mm-hmm. early part of this century right. where Marvel did not know what to do with Captain America. And thank God Ed Brubaker came along and was like, it's okay, guys, I've got this. Yes. 
Absolutely. No, absolutely. But what's interesting to me is the number of times that they then went on to relaunch it after that, in some cases, with the same creative team, you know, with Brubaker still on board. Yeah. Um, yeah so it was Brubaker, and then it was... Oh, then it was Remender. That's it. Exactly. That's it for relaunches. Yeah, that, that's Remember it. Remember twice, though. So. Yeah. Yeah. But so you start looking at those situations where Marvel goes, well, okay, you know, first we just relaunched, you know, because it's a crazy new direction for the character. And then we just relaunched because it was a team that we wanted you to pay attention to. And now it's just a relaunch because mumble, mumble, mumble. You know what I mean? Like, oh. Well, the, the, the classic example of that for me is the Wolverine relaunch. Mm-hmm. Well, it was like, I, it's the second part of Paul Cornell's story. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. And everyone was like, wait, it's the number one, but it's actually the same story that's continuing? Yeah. Why are we relaunching? And it really just came down to the sales are far lower than what we wanted. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's it. Marvel, Marvel's just addicted to that little relaunch button because they, they well, need... Well, then Secret, Secret Wars is going to give them a massive bump. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Secret Wars is going to give them a really dramatically sizable bump, mm -hmm. in large part because they're going to tell everyone that it will. Mm -hmm. and yeah, well, they've tried that before, but that didn't necessarily work. Again, it's that thing. This is the thing that I feel, and I could be wrong, is honestly, after Avengers versus X-Men, and what was the other one? Maybe it was Inhumanity. Like, hopefully retailers are catching on. There's a little bit of a, like, if you don't order their event, they will overship it to you free. Well, that was know? Inhuman. Inhuman was, remember, all the hype beforehand. They were mm -hmm. like, get on the ground floor, true believers. Yeah. And and no one did. That's not true. It's like it's sold respectably. but Respectably, for, for but all, not. For all yeah. of the hype that was getting mm -hmm. thrown behind it, it right. sold terribly. Exactly. So you're, you're also, seeing... Have I, have I told you my surreal um, inhumanity fact about Marvel Unlimited? No. So everything that Marvel publishes these days goes on Marvel Unlimited six months afterwards, right? Right. No. The second part of Fraction's Inhumanity is not on there. Still. Oh, really? Isn't that weird? That's fascinating to me. I would... I, like, you know, everything else is on there. Fucking Star-Lord reprint titles are on there. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, there's always the stuff that's kind of... I mean, but there, there was a time there where I was completely obsessed that, you know, Mighty Avengers, like, had, like, three issues in, and then it took forever for them to put up the fourth, and I was, like, hatching out the theories. It wouldn't surprise me, though, if for something like, yeah, Fractions in Humanity, the second issue of which, where they were already, like, going, uh, no, we're gonna restart this, that they'll just kind of be like, mm, you know, I mean, I'm, it's... I'm, I'm super curious about why it's not showing up. Yeah. Well, I mean, super curious. I mean, it, it. I'd be super curious to see if it does show up, but it would not surprise me if it doesn't. Yeah, you know? at this point, I pretty much resign myself to it's not going to. Although, Marvel Limbs has finally started added, adding random back issues again. Yeah, they, 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 they didn't periods. for the longest time, and mm -hmm. now all of a sudden they're like, ah, have some Fantastic Four issues. Well, see, this is it. What I what I find, at least in you know now that it's been almost a year, is it seems that every two or three months they'll suddenly turn around and be like, okay, here's a bunch of issues from the Hulk, Spider Man, Fantastic Four. And the Avengers. Oh, and X-Men, of course. You know, so the big, big titles. I do worry to the extent that which, you know, the rumors that, that 
you know, the X-Men are not to be given high priority publishing priority by Marvel comics. If there's a point at which that just is like, yeah, we don't need to put this stuff up on Marvel unlimited. You know, it is, it is, it is an amazing service, but it is a service that is curated by, you know, a company that has never been afraid to advance an agenda, you know? Yeah. I did. There's yeah. The stuff that is not on Marvel limited at this point is just annoying me. Like there's no Marvel two in one, Jeff. Oh, I know. That went on for a hundred issues. I know. No, there's believe me. One issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. It, and it is killer because, especially because of the Avengers stuff that we've been reading, which I think is probably a, a, an important segue here. Where there's You're a lot that of almost an hour and a half in, and we only have two hours. Yeah, maybe, maybe that could be <laughs> what I'm thinking. Uh, the, the idea that you know that Marvel. There's a period of Marvel two and one in which Mark Grunwald was either writing it or editing it, and bringing... he's, he's co-writing with Ralph Macchio. You're oh, talking okay. about the whole Project Pegasus and all. Like there's there's like a two year run which is really central to Marvel continuity. Yes, really central, and in part because on books where Grunwald's editing or writing, he's making a point to bring those characters back in. So yeah. So yeah, there was something along in the Avengers where I was like, yeah, arguably I would say that the, this run of of the Avengers, like the the three titles that you really sort of need, you know, quote unquote, need to read, of which your understanding of the stories grow are probably Marvel two and one, and then Secret Wars one and two. God help you, you know. So, <laughs> oh, so okay, let's talk about Avengers then, because yes. we are. Uh, when we left off with Avengers, yes. uh, Roger Cern had come along and made everything better. Yes. And now read on. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is the thing that I think is fascinating to me, is is that arguably everything that I liked about issues 225 through 250 um, get redone from 251 through I read through 277 and and possibly even better because for someone like me who's kind of like ah oh, Mount Milgram and Senate it's like ooh yeah exactly I, replace that with Bishama and Palmer and you're like so this look book looks amazing yeah it, i no, mean it just like, flat this out book does looks amazing it, it, and yeah and Stern is in prime i mean Stern is in control of what he's fucking doing and Absolutely. what he's doing is doing remixes of all the Avengers stories that you've read before. So you get your Kang story, yes. and it's multiple Kangs. You yes. get the Submariner versus the the Her- uh, versus Hercules, mm-hmm. but it's because they've just you know Hercules is just joshing. Right. Uh, you know, you get all these classic tropes. You, you get a you get the Masters War. of Evil story. You get you get a huge Masters of Evil story. You get a huge Scroll War story of you know outer space shenanigans. You know, yeah, and uh, you you even get the fucking Beyonder, and he's not annoying. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you get him like twice at least. You know, and I, I think that that's so. Uh, what I found was fascinating to me was how much of these issues. On the one hand, I totally read them, enjoyed them. They are absolutely an improvement. In in at least a certain number of cases, they are an improvement of the issues immediately preceding before, and arguably for me, I, the best versions of some of these stories done to date. You know, certainly I was thinking that the Masters of Evil storyline 
is a far more satisfying Masters of Evil storyline. You know, considering that you have a villains invade the Avengers Mansion and take over Avengers Mansion, you know, is such a constant trope through the first hundred issues, you know, 150 issues of the title. Seeing it done here where it's like, yeah, and we are going to fuck shit up. And we're going to fuck up shit that is going to, you know, that's going to include having Jarvis brutally beaten right before Captain America's eyes. Like, I'll, it, 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 to me, it's uh, amazing because it's, there's so much of Marvel in the 80s here at its apex. And yet at the same time, it somehow has become so flyweight to me. Like it is really, um, you know, at this point, I mean, it, it is, it is absolutely sort of holds up the virtues of what people might think of as classic Marvel comics. Um, and yet part of me while reading it did find myself thinking, God, I just, you know, I know that these guys kind of abhorred Chris Claremont, you know, for various reasons, but, but he is so, I would so much rather be reading his stuff at this point. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah, like I enjoyed all this. I really did. Do not get me wrong. I absolutely. So what? What is it about Claremont that you missed? Um, Was it Claremont's playing against the trope? It's which he he adored doing. Yes, to, to sometimes the detriment of his work. Oh, completely frustrating degrees. No, I think it's just. Um... Uh, how do I put it? Like, this very much strikes me uh, as, you know, the the next stage that you get when Shooter ends up Ascendant, which is the era of the proud craftsman, you know? Um, and this is the sort of thing, this is always the argument that always makes you throw your hands up in the air uh, at me, Graham, and I apologize. But it just, there's no, there's nothing really passionate about it. I mean, for one thing, Stern keeps his subplots on such low boil compared to what I'm used to. Like that <laughs> event, the vision storyline goes on forever, forever. in its yes. setting up. And then when it hatches, it's such a weird malnourished, like, Oh, this could have been an Avengers annual, but let me, let me goose it. Maybe I can get three issues. Oh, look out. He's really sorry. He took over NORAD. You know what I mean? Or, or, you know, Oh, here comes Quasimodo exactly where we thought we were going with the corruption of the vision sequence. You know, what, uh, what I found wonderful uh, along similar lines is the fact that at least in these, you know, 20 odd issues, Stern brings in and gets rid of Avengers in the most understated manner at any point in the oh, book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. Like, I didn't realize Star Fox had left the book until someone calls it out in dialogue. Yes. Yeah, well, because... And I was like, oh, he's gone? Mm -hmm. And this is the thing. That's an amazing subject. That whole scroll war is ridiculously anticlimactic the number of panels because i was re-looking through it the number of issues where it ends with nebula on the last page looking menacing or promising something horrible has happened or that there was some sort of revelation that was coming down the pike about her 
And yet, what actually gets revealed, I mean, you know, by the time you get to that Avengers Annual 14, which is supposed to be, is driven by Star Fox being like, we have to pursue Nebula. We have to stop it. This is serious. We have to do this. And then in the last six pages, you're like, where's Star Fox? Where is he? Like, there's no way you can have him there because they, because Stern's aware. Like, well, I got to wrap up this story and next issue I'll write Star Fox off. And, you know, on the one hand, what's great is he is so invested in bringing people in, giving them things to do, like a lot of really smart problem solving. Having Hercules instead of Thor is precisely the smart move. Like you get all of this, all you get all of the benefits of having a Thor-like character and absolutely none of the negatives. You know, you can do whatever you want for the character. You can make him an oaf. You can make him a bigger oaf. You can make him a complete you know, good-natured, hard-drinking idiot in a way that you can't really get Thor to do by, by this particular point without stepping on some, you know, pretty formidable toes considering, you know, you've got Walt Simonson doing his thing at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but there, the number of issues, like, there's, like, the the Wasp, like, it's always great that every once in a while you get an issue where it's like, let's check in with the Wasp. Let's have a, you know, here she is punching out Yellow Jacket. Here she is, like, having sex with Paladin and, you know, punching out some dude at a resort, you know. All those things are kind of great. And yet what's fascinating to me is the extent to which they are static. It's as if Stern is aware that change is really an illusion. Like he, mm-hmm. he understands that early on, earlier, you know, as a lot of people are talking, as people like Byrne, who's very close to him, are, are catching on. There's that idea of like, yeah, no, you just sort of reinvent the wheel and you try and do it in a way that's more pleasing and or to settle various scores that you have. You know, because at the same time, there's a lot in this run of Avengers where he's trying to be like, hey, the scrolls, they don't shape change anymore. Savage Land, it's completely gone. Forget about it. You know, it's just things that is like, that's completely changed. It's over. That's the way it's going to be forever. Um, well, but also, it's a great way of providing, use the famous quote, the illusion of change. Yeah. Because you provide, you know, nothing will ever be the same again to concepts that you don't see. Yes. Do you know what I mean? So you're like, Savage Land's God. And that means nothing because no one regularly visits Savage Land. The Skrulls have lost the shape-changing powers. Again, it doesn't really mean anything. You don't really see the Skrulls that often. Right. And it's a really, really uh, smart but cynical way to convince the readers that this stuff counts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A far better than it was, but a great example for me of Stern's uh, slowness, shall we say, Ooh. with his subplots, yes. is his complete lack of uh, ability to move Captain Marvel forward, despite continually hinting that it's going to happen. Oh yes, Captain Marvel. Captain, Captain Marvel gets forward. so much, so much screen time. Yeah, and it's always, I'm on the cusp of this change. Maybe this guy's going to ask me out. Maybe I'm going to start my own business. Maybe I'm going to do this, and right. she never does it. Yeah, but yeah, you get, she gets so much time. Yeah, these twenty issues. Yeah, of maybe this is about to happen. It's right. kind of amazing, and it, and again, when you read them, you know, twenty issues in quick succession, yes. it becomes very obvious. Oh, the Stern is wonderful 
mm-hmm. at making you think something's about to happen without yes. ever actually doing anything. Yeah, and I, I I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely mm-hmm. think you know, with the limitations that you have for these comics, right? He's he's a master at it. Yeah, I I think so too. Except there is an amount. Now, admittedly, you know, by the time you get to whatever he starts in at two twenty, whatever to the point here. You know, he's been working on this for well over four years. You know, you've, we've been reading four years of comics in, in a month, basically. And I, for me, there's a, there is, yeah, there's absolutely that feeling of like, they're completely entertaining and they're much closer to the platonic ideal of the Avengers. (laughs) Well, the platonic Avenger, the idea of the Avengers, but actually it is, it's, um, it's uh it's it's a successful DC Marvel hybrid. You know what I mean? Like it is it looks and reads like a Marvel comic, but it actually has the the subliminal sort of comfort and solidity of DC comics, you know? Um interesting because this this is this is genuinely like my platonic Marvel comic. Right. Uh in large part because this is the adventures I grew up on. Right, which which totally makes sense, and I mean, I I have to say, as someone who had stopped reading long before this, this is by far like these fifty issues are, I think, my favorites right after Engelhart, like hands down. Um, but looking at stuff like, oh my god, like any, I was just like this sub romantic subplot with the Black Knight and the Wasp is glacial is ridiculously <laughs> glacial and all of the subplots are jeff that's the thing well that's it all, like, all of it's them a good are. thing we're reading 25 at a time yes because otherwise we'd forget what's going on with half of this shit exactly and i mean it's that but, slow with five he's at a point where he's writing a book with six characters five of whom don't have their own books you know what i mean like mm-hmm. Yeah. Other writers would absolutely go insane, you know, and have turned all of the characters like evil and then back to normal and then have them strip them of their powers and then, you know, sent them on a vision quest and then gave them a completely different name and new set of powers. What What is kind of hilarious is you're saying all this and I'm like, well, so you're talking about the Avengers after like issue 320 something. Right. Well, I, I will take your word for it and it would not surprise me. But I'm also talking in a way to me about, you know, Claremont, bless his fucking confused little heart over on <laughs> X-Men is believe it's doing everything. Yeah. yeah. Claremont's like change it. Yeah. Change everything. Just continual forward growth. He believes in it. At, I mean, he believes in it, you know, in a, it's been very fiscally rewarding to him at that point anyway, you know, and to come, but oh, even but, more but so you know, he believes it. Cause we'll see. And that's what I was going to say. He deeply believes forever. in it. Yeah. He, he, like, yeah. Have you read? Okay. Yes. Yeah, I read that first trade. I think I tried to read. The, they didn't have the second it's trade. All, in the library, it's all but... in unlimited, Jeff. It's oh all shit! Of course it, it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You should read it because and everyone else who's listening to this, who has heard me before, rave about X Men Unlimited, uh, X Men Forever. It is amazing yeah. because it really is Claremont on fast forward, mm-hmm. and so many people talk about Claremont, you know, being slow burn. Being long game, X Men Forever is not that. Yeah, but you totally recognize all the character beats, even mm-hmm. as they're happening, mm-hmm. and you realize how much he is just like, I'm going to keep going. Yeah, I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to retread. 
Yeah. So, you know, he gets X-Men forever, and one of the first things he does is kills off Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, no, because this is going to be great for, you know, Kitty. It's going to be great for Storm, who, by the way, isn't really Storm. Ha-ha! And right. look, here's Rogue, and she's going to swap powers with Nightcrawler. Here's the Beast. He's in love with Jean, who's now in love with him, because she's not with Cyclops anymore. There's the Beast dead! And he just was like, I'm pumping this shit out. Yeah, and I think I think he... On the I one just hand, I think, so many points yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> thanks a lot, Graham. Uh, there, there's, there's just a ton that that goes on there. Well, but so for me, there is a fascinating way in which Claremont is. He does, like you said, he believes in forward growth. I feel that X Men Forever is his. Like, come, let me just fucking cut loose. It, the same way that supposedly X Men: The End, people were reading it and were just like. Like he's clearly writing it as if it's a title where he finally can once again do do anything, but you know he is he's a huge fan of like aware in some hyperkinetic need that he that things have to change and and even though that ends up like. I mean, he not only shoots himself in the foot with it, he shoots people. I basically felt shot in the face with it, you know, and it was uh, as much as I was like, I don't want to be on the Chris Claremont crazy train anymore um, because it ends up leading you to believe in a worldview, not unlike that of the Wrenchies. There was a way in which (laughs) I really... That's not true. The Chris Claremont train ends up leading you to the Shadow King. All Chris Claremont trains leads to... The Shadow King. Yes. Yeah. Unlike the Shadow Men in the Wrenchies. So. <laughs> the Wrenchies does not have nearly enough BDSM subtext. Oh, it's totally true. Comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe me. The Shadow King, let's face it, is just like this very intense, like, dominant. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. They're, no, they're, but the Wrenchies is like nihilistic in a way that the X-Men never is. The well, X-Men is literally well, just Claremont being like... You know, one of these days you're going to come across this guy and he's going to be like a really, really powerful master. And then you can realize it's completely okay right. to, to be a slave. Yeah, the see. end of Chris Claremont's worldview. Well, see, right. there, there you go. And, you know, again, I think the Wrenchies is like, yeah, you know, counterpoint, this is not okay, Chris Claremont. This is not okay. <laughs> you know? But, oh, my uh, God. That is – that's the headline of some interview you should do with Chris Claremont. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he would be thrilled. So I, this is not okay. Anyway, back to Avengers. So, so yeah. So I feel as much as I enjoyed this, which I really did. I also was aware that what I was looking at was some heavy duty illusion of change type stuff. Yeah, um, it's Avengers. I think what makes Stern's Avengers so uh, entertaining and so enjoyable for me, beyond the nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It is ever since Engelhart back in 150, mm-hmm. Avengers has been in stasis. Mm-hmm. The characters cannot change. The characters can't move forward. And right. Stern is the first one to make that work. Yeah. And he makes it work by, I don't, I'm not entirely sure how he makes it work. He makes it work by basically doing very entertaining greatest hits. Yeah. Well, he does. There's, he... there's no real, uh, innovation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as much as I dislike the shooter stuff, he was innovating in his own weird way. Mm-hmm. And Stern isn't. Stern is yeah. just doing a very enjoyable, professional version mm-hmm. of a modernized, uh, 
not even a modernized Lee, a modernized Thomas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly a modernized Thomas here because, of course, Thomas, as as we know from having done the read, is you know is the guy who propped up the Avengers in the first hundred issues and more or less defined them much more than than Lee ever did. Um, I, so I, wait, yeah, I want to interrupt for a second. I True. never told you. I told you that there is a Justice League slam in these issues, and did you get it? Did oh no, it? I didn't. I didn't. You have to tell me. Okay, in Avengers two sixty two. Mm-hmm. Um, the Avengers have to move their Quinjets outside of New York. Yes, remember, and they get a big parcel of mail mm-hmm. from from Jarvis, which is various places asking the Avengers to move there. Oh yes, the Detroit Slam. Yes, yes, of course. How I did I miss that? Goes Detroit. They've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly the same time as Justice League's moving to Detroit. Got it. Got it. That's really funny. I didn't pick it up. In fact, I had kind of the one of those weird, like, what are they trying to say yeah, here? What, what are they doing with this sequence? Yeah, it's totally a Justice League Detroit Slam. Got it. Got it. Huh. Huh. Fascinating. Well, that that is that is actually incredibly good to know, Graham. I appreciate that. Oh, I was going to say, there's a few things that one of the things I thought that Stern does that was a, he kept doing enough that I caught onto it as a trick and thought it was brilliant is the fact of when he starts one of his mega storylines, like, cause when I was trying to type the recaps on this in like a relatively, you know, like just for notes for me, he'll start something like the masters of evil storyline. He'll have the first part of it. And then the next issue is actually a different storyline that, that, you know, the Avengers get drawn into to have to take care of a wrap up. And the thing that actually, like when the scroll stuff starts, you have Captain Marvel end up in space. It looks like they're going to go and end up in space almost immediately. And then all that Terminus stuff comes in and then you bring in the rest of the stuff with the scrolls. And so there's kind of that feeling of like, and it happens again with the, the masters of evil too. I yeah, think you, you, you know? get Yellowjack a few issues before. Yeah. Exactly. And, and she is rescued by – I'm trying to see when – when do you get Yellow Jacket? Well, see, there's, so you get Yellow Jacket, but then you get the first part Yellow of Jacket Masters. Yellow Jacket way before. Yeah. Yellow Jacket's 264. And yeah. Masters of, and, but that's – that at the end of the story sets up Masters of Evil by having uh, the Yellow Jacket rescued by – I always want to say elongated man. I mean, absorbing man. (laughs) Yes. By absorbing man. Right. So you get that, but you have something like 270 looks like it's the starting of the masters of evil storyline. And then you get that whole, like, let's go to Atlantis and have our alpha flight crossover and try and understand what the hell is up with Submariner and Marina. Good luck, everyone. (laughs) And then we come back to it. So it's one of those weird things that, and the way in which Stern so, um, kind of quickly and almost quietly recycles new characters in and out. Like he brings Submariner in, he's there, he does stuff. And he's out in like five, six issues. Yes. Like surprisingly short, like he's in, in two sixty two, and he's out by two seventy four. He's out a year later and not in that classic sort of David Michelini. Oh, I had plans for the character, but then everything went differently. And so I just had to abandon them and now he's gone. You know, it's like you assume whatever he wanted to do, he was in there for, but it's also brilliant for providing the sense of, 
kind of the illusion of change. There's very, very lovely small character beats. Captain Marvel's whole, like, can I trust this guy to, at the end, being like, oh my god, he's so much a character of honor, I never really even understood him. You know, it's just just a lot of really, really smart stuff. And fun comics to read. Really, really fun. I do not want to diss him at all, you know. But but at the same time, I definitely found myself just just a little restless, just a little bit like, okay, let's what's going to happen now? Let's have something happen. And of course, from <laughs> what it sounds like, I'm going to regret that, thinking that so much. Um, well, you very we're soon. very close to Stern being forced out of the book. Really? Yeah. Uh, Stern's last issue as full writer is 285. Wow. Okay. Uh, and if you pay attention to the letters pages, which I don't know if you're doing or not. No, uh, I've just been scanning them. Stern and Grunewald both talk about him being forced out of the book. Oh, interesting. Uh, when he goes. Mm. No, uh, and our, I both seem to be, you know, relatively okay with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but it's like they're both they're also they don't do the traditional he's really busy. Right. They they do like they do the we had conflict over the direction of this title huh. and Mark's the editor. So right. he gets to pick a writer. Huh. Wow. Fascinating. And who comes yeah, in so after that? <clears throat> uh Ralph Macchio comes in for like five issues and then Walt Simonson comes in for a super for for I want to say ten issues, where oh, wow. he rebuilds the team, which takes us up three hundred, which is our stopping point. Yes, but his last issue is also the first and last appearance of his Avengers. Huh. Uh, because, uh, I, and that's one of the times where they do go. He's really busy, right? And you know, you're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, so something else is going on there. Huh. Um. And it's because Byrne comes in like five issues later and is like, I'm redefining the Avengers entirely. Oh, shit. Right. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I knew he was coming back in, didn't realize it was that far down the bike, and ho-ho, Nelly. Um, yeah, yeah I, I enjoyed these issues so much that I was like, maybe we should keep the Avengers reread going past issue 300. <laughs> and then remembered, like, it actually gets dire very quickly. Right. Right. No, I'm and, really we glad that on we did a relatively that. high note. Right. Which was your plan? Because way back when, when I suggested this, I was like, "We could do them all." You're like, "Shit, no." I'm like, "It'll be fine. We just have to do, you know, sixty comics in, uh, a month, and you know, what whatever insanity I was thinking of." Um, but yeah, grab yeah, no, the end three, is three hundred is a good a good stuff. Yeah, we are really we're twenty five issues from the end, or less than that. We're what twenty three issues from the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. Because I assume, like me, you also read all the way to the end of the Masters of Evil storyline. Yeah, I actually read a couple of issues past that as well. Oh, it deals you with all, it deals oh. with all the fallout. The next couple of issues are almost Claremontian, like how are we going to recover from this big event storyline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this Masters of Evil was one of those things where they. He really did. He wanted it to try and mean something. And it's fascinating to me the things were because there's a lot of panels of like the Masters of Evil wrecking shit in <laughs> Avengers Mansion. And I'm just like, this means nothing to me. You know, they, they Stern figures out a way to get a hook to make it personal for Cap. But it, but that was also that weird subtext of like, again, everybody, you know, different, not all comic books have to be exactly the same, but you know, I realized in a way, at least, at least the first, I don't know, half dozen times they blew up, you know, Xavier mansion 
you know, I was like, oh, man, oh, I feel it, you know. <laughs> yeah. They, that's the softball field is scorched. And, of course, Claremont being Claremont, it's like, I'm going to have someone ruminate there and see ghostly figures playing just so you get it, you know. So whereas Stern's like, you know, here's Absorbing Man kicking the shit out of a dresser. And I'm like, mm, yeah. Dark times, my friend, I actually, dark times. Maybe it's because I've read too many X-Men comics. I actually found the destruction of Avengers Mansion much more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part because in, X- in X-Men, you'd have someone destroy the mansion. And then like two issues later, they'd be like, actually, we've rebuilt it with Shi'ar technology. Oh, yeah, totally. totally. And you'd be like, so that really meant nothing. That, that was meant honestly nothing. No, just no, no, exactly. cheap, cheap like, yeah. playing on the reader sentiment. Yeah, completely. Completely. That's why I said the first half dozen times. Because that's the thing with Claremont. It's like the first couple of times those things happen, you're like, oh my god. But then Claremont's just like, you know, stuck in that weird, I can do it again, fetishistic rut that's just. Which is, makes him so fascinating. Indeed. Indeed. So fascinating to me. Claremont, he shaped my reading, my reading career as a kid. All of us. I have to say, I, thanks, thanks to, Listeners, thanks to Graham McMillan's wonderful birthday generosity, I'm currently in the process of reading um, The Secret History of Wonder Woman uh, by oh, Jules ha- Lepore. How is it? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not very far in. I'm literally only just 10% into the book. So uh, we'll see where it goes. On the one hand, it's fascinating. It's intensely readable. It is as Tom Cruise would um, famously say, glib. It's a little glib. Um, so far, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of like easy shots scored um, by Lepore. Uh, but that's what I was worried about. I was worried it was going to be the, hey, did you know the person who created Wonder Woman also created a lie detector and was kinky? Right. Well, I, and I'm okay with that. I'm actually hoping. I think that Lepore, I, what you've got lined up is, is that Lepore really is going to take a point to try and delve into these characters' um, arrangements and lifestyles in a way that is illuminating. To me, I guess what I mean is, is like, you know, Marston, you know, studied under a distinguished German psychologist, you know, who, who later on, Basically, it's like later there's a Wonder Woman issue where she, you know, fights the corruption of Dr. Psycho. You know, it's like literally there's a point where the German guy like dies at his work job. And then later in a Wonder Woman comic, there's like a tombstone that says, rest in peace, Dr. Psycho. And I'm like, these aren't happening at the same time. And unless you've got something else that's going on, like the idea that Marston actually equates this one character who was his mentor with you know, the crazy psychosexual, you know, buffoon just because that dude was, you know, using a cyanide bomb. So it's really, that's sort of more of what I mean is, is there's a lot of like really glib, like, you know, uh, Marston was so uh, impressed, you know, pleased by his admission to Harvard that forever after he like carried his Phi Beta Kappa key, you know, hate dangling from his jacket. And then she's like, you know, here's a picture of Wonder Woman at Wonder Woman University tying up a professor who's got a five beta kappa key. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, 
Okay, then. You know what I mean? Like, there's a little bit... <laughs> yeah, no, I, bit I totally know what you mean. That. And that, that sounds like the book I wouldn't want to read. Yeah, but on the other hand, there's some really great stuff. There's a lot more delving into... Uh, at least initially, the personality of Marston's first wife, uh, and then one of these women who looks like will later become important to uh, his life and to Wonder Woman. You know, th- there's the fact that that Marston won like some big photo play. Actually, one of the things that's great to me is is the fact that it's like 1914, 1915. Like Marston, in order to make more money for himself as a college student, decides he's going to write screenplays for uh, for extra money. But of course, they're not even called screenplays, and they're called photo plays. And the thing that is awesome is one of the first things that he does is he goes out and buys is a book on how to write photo plays and I love the fact that even now for every person who goes out and buys a copy of Robert McKee's story or Sid Field's screenplay like seriously the screenplay was written on day one the book on how to write screenplays was written on day two and has been sold to people (laughs) ever since and I find that kind of hilarious and adorable um which I feel should be like a big segue into your 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 hot writers article that you're working on. But can you even talk about that yet? Uh, sure. It's not going to be it's it's, it's not going to be running or anything anytime soon. It's going to be running at the beginning of December, I think. Uh huh. Um, for the last week and a bit, mm-hmm. um, I have been talking to uh, a bunch of writers. Mm-hmm. For a top five writers, it's like five most powerful writers in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Sorry, five most powerful comic writers in Hollywood, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, we, so what happened was we were told that this being me and, uh, Boris Kidd for the mm-hmm. Hollywood Reporter, that we had to come up with this list. Uh, but we were also told that Robert Kirkman was number one. <laughs> Spoilers, uh, everybody. Which, which had already been decided uh, yeah. and was already being written by someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to fill in the other four. Those other four are Jeff Johns, Brian Michael Bendis, Mark mm-hmm. Miller, and Chris Claremont. So I have been via email interviewing them, mm-hmm. which, you know, via email means I send a bunch of questions, they send me a bunch of answers. The magazine pieces are remarkably short. They're 200 words mm. for each, which is nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the expectation, and this is actually entirely dependent on my time, is I can write longer profiles for the website. Ah. Uh, I really would like to mm-hmm. because uh, Miller and to a lesser extent Bendis both gave me a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. in response to the questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that I'd like to, I, I, what I might end up doing is like writing one and comparing their answers to questions, mm-hmm. uh, because I think it'd make it really interesting, uh, uh, comparison and, and it draws a picture out when you put them on next to each other. Right. Um, but it has been a very enjoyable period. Mm-hmm. Um, what Jeff also knows for, not for entirely different pieces is that uh, I also am doing an email interview with uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which, you know, holy fuck. Um, <laughs> and I think in a couple of weeks I'm talking to Jeff Lemire for a, a fairly long-form piece. 
mm. uh, for Hollywood Reporter as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be timed to the first issue of The Valiant getting released, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I've read and really liked. Oh, yeah. I really liked. Also, talking to Jeff Lemire, I got Teen Titans Earth 1, the graphic novel he's done with Terry Dodson. Uh-huh. It's the first of the Earth 1 books I think I could actually say, genuinely say is good. Oh, wow. Which kind of shocked the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> and the reason I remembered is not Jeff Lemire, but because all the way through, I was like, this is like a Valiant book. Mm. This sounds weird, right? But imagine a Valiant book mm-hmm. that was drawn by Terry Dodson, who has just recently read Empowered. Wow. There are weird moments where he's, it, it feels like he's trying to channel Adam Warren. Whoa. What? So it's a really weird book. I mean, he's very clearly, it's very clearly Terry and Rachel Dodson drawing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they're just, he's much more cartoony than normal. Mm-hmm. Much more cartoony. And there are times, particularly with the character of Terra, where it really seems like I really got an Adam Warren vibe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a weird book, but it's, it's, if you can imagine having read the, the Valiant books you've read, Mm-hmm. Um, if you can imagine Valiant doing Teen Titans. I I kind of, I, I almost kind of can, frankly. And it, it does sound appealing, I have to say. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. It is very, even more so than the other books, the other Earth One books. It is part one of a series. Mm-hmm. As in, it ends with a cliffhanger. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, this isn't a standalone graphic novel. This is book one of a series. Wow. Um... But it's a, a really entertaining series and kind of the best version of Teen Titans I've seen in a long time. Jeez. Holy smokes. Well, that is that is truly remarkable. That is truly yeah, remarkable who, who knew? <laughs> I mean, really, I did not expect it to be... I didn't even expect it to be good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, you know, if this was a regular comic, I'd be buying it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. That's something that's I'll have unexpected. to keep an eye open for, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I've been talking to a bunch of people this week through email, and it mm-hmm. has been uh, eye-opening and entertaining. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, and I said this to you in email, um, Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Miller are princes in terms of doing interviews this way. They wow. were so fucking fast and so polite, mm-hmm. I cannot say enough good things. Having done a bunch of email interviews... There are others where you're just like, just please fucking say you got the email. Just, just respond. <laughs> just do not respond. Just, do not just yeah. disappear. Yeah. And I swear to God, Miller, I got in touch with him for the first time to, to, to just be like, are you up for doing this? Mm-hmm. I had his answers within that day. Wow. Yeah, Which that's ridiculous. That's great. That's great. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it, it's been... It's been nuts. Also, hilariously, he gave me the information that Marvel refused to about how many copies Civil War One sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, got, a- I got in touch with Marvel, and I was like, "How much does Civil War One actually sell?" And they're like, "We we're, we will we will not tell you." And I was like, "Okay, I'll just go with the the estimates for the first issue." Mm-hmm. And so I put that in, and I, I like I sent the piece to Mark, and I was like. Is there anything I've gotten wrong? And he's like, yeah, you've got your Civil War things wrong. It's actually... And then he gave me the number. And I was like, okay. Not sure I'm supposed to use that, but thanks. Yeah, exactly. I'll go with that. Huh. Huh. Well, that's uh, that's fabulous, Graham. 
So yes, it, but and here's the funny thing, and I think I've spoken about this before. Um, when I have a good experience with a creator, it totally colors my perception of their work. Right. Right. <laughs> totally. After that, I was like, Mike Miller's not for me, but come on. <laughs> Seriously, we can crank out an entertaining tale. The, well, the, same, the same with the Bendis thing. I was right. like, I was then reading one of his X Men books, and I was like, I'm not really digging this, but that's okay. It's not written <laughs> for me. It's so <laughs> hilarious when that happens. The halo effect will have to wear off. Wow, wow. I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of envious that you get that sort of little boost. I guess so. Ah, well, Graham McMillan, it is yeah, normally... Yeah, we, we've, we, we've done our time, because you mm-hmm. have a hard stop this week. We do. We have a very, very hard, somewhat semi-exhausted stop on, on my part, so... Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up, where you're, wherever you're listening to this, to Mr. Jeff Lester, who has done this podcast for two hours, even though he is sick. Uh, I'm, I'm mildly sick, but thank you. Thank you. Actual clapping. That's so sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yes, and thank you to everyone who, um, you know, follows us and supports us. Uh, I think as I, you know, we've, we've got a usual shtick, which I do not ha- even have remotely open this time around. What Jeff wants to tell you is that we have a website, which is at waitwhatpodcast.com. At that website, Jeff and I both write written posts. We both do one once a week. Uh, Jeff, what are you writing about this week? Well, it's kind of interesting. I'll have to see. It's either going to be a little bit of quick catch-up about some of the digital titles that I I follow, particularly the DC titles that I've written about before, uh, since there have been another few issues of Sensation Comics, Wonder Woman, um, and the wonderful uh, Bat Manga. Or it might be a very quick but heartfelt appreciation for um, Fumi Yoshinaga's uh, Yoshinaga's Not Love But Delicious Foods Makes Me So Happy, which is a... Uh, I know which one I want, and it might be the lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suspect it will probably be that, because that I read that. That was a... Uh, it's a... It's a, it's a um, what's, what's the word? It's a, it's a small joy, is what it is, I think. Um, also, uh, check us out at Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash waitwhatpodcast, all one th- word. Uh, we're currently 83 patrons. Uh, make this all possible for us to be able to provide uh, delightful uh, podcasts and reviews. And we are slowly inching ever closer to the point where we will be doing an extra podcast uh, every month if these people have their way. So we are hugely uh, indebted to them it is it is uh, all possible because of you people so thank you yeah. very much indeed uh, you can find us on tumblr which I sporadically update I go through periods of going update uh, update uh. <laughs> so you should, what I'm saying is if you're on tumblr just add it anyway and then you'll get weirdness yeah you'll you'll, you'll get like a huge hilarious dose of 2000 AD covers which uh, which I was very envious about oh did you I, see I should mention for everyone one of the great uh, joys of free comics is if you sign up for the 2000 AD newsletter, they usually you, you inc- get free. You get a free strip. Exactly. Every every issue you get a free. Uh, every weekly email you get a free uh, comic strip. And this week's strip was an early one uh, by Grant Morrison, a fantastic retake um, 
on the on the EC standard trope in which in the future where we have artificially intelligent cars, a man falls in love with his and then falls in love with another person's car and a, a dark tale of vehicular uh, murder and betrayal. Pretty hilarious. A little glib, but absolutely a hilarious updating of the EC standard. So I, I heard a fascinating story from uh, someone recently, and I yes. don't know if it is true or if uh, I am being told porkies to, that if you want to write for 2080, you have to write a future shock. Mm-hmm. Have to. You yeah. cannot get around that rule. Yeah, I which believe I it. love. I love yeah. the idea that you have to write like a five-page one-off strip yeah. that is essentially a Shaggy Dog story with a funny punchline. Yeah, love yeah. that idea. Yep, yep. I I do too, and I think it's an absolutely super solid, good rule of thumb because there is kind of there's. It shows that you know how to do formula, but it doesn't give you anything to hide behind either. So yeah. Um, it's it's absolutely I, something I, I uh, am very appreciated by, uh, very much appreciated about. I, I really hope I really hope that rule is true. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that that is the Tumblr. We are also on uh, Twitter, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Oh, I am. What is the Twitter? Uh, the Twitter is Wait What Podcast, right? But Jeff is at. Oh, but I'm at lazy. I love that the cow goes lazy bastard. <laughs> L A Z Y B A S T I D, all one word. And Graham is at at Graham M G R A E M E M. Yes, lovely. And uh, you know, I hate to sound like an idiot, but are we Twitter? Are we? Are are we? Wait, what podcast? We are, right? Or did we, we are. Do... Yes. Okay, I just, we couldn't get away with wait what, as I recall. But yeah, so we, that's we are wait what podcast. So you know, there's that at wait yes. what podcast. Yeah. Um. I think that is it. I think that is our normal spiel, is it not? That is. That is it. Uh, soon in next time where Graham and I well, have to figure out we, how to talk considering it's Thanksgiving two weeks. That's today. what I was going to say. We yeah. are going to have to come up with an alternate plan. Do we wait three weeks? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Do we well, wait a week? Because, you know, <laughs> put it this way, I'm not available on Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> But are you available – if you're available – what I was thinking was I have the day after Thanksgiving off. I figured we could maybe talk the day after and then and then uh, it, yes. it would get edited and get put back up and it would – we there would be wow. no loss of time on everyone else. Well, we, sh- we should definitely plan that. People, let's say that we're probably going to be around two weeks from now. And if not, we'll tell you via one of the many places we've just informed we you. We just mentioned. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So, as always, thank you for listening to us for two hours. Uh, people, you should read the ranchies. If there's one moral to this story, oh, yes, you should read the ranchies. And if there's two morals, it's if the ranchies then leaves you entirely distraught about humanity, your own humanity, and humanity en masse. Why don't you then dip into Roger Stern's Avengers? Exactly. Weirdly comforting. Exactly. Exactly bland enough to kind of make you feel okay again. It is. It is. It is definitely Roger Stern's Avengers is is comfort food uh, for for the superhero soul. So Uh, this has been your remarkably balanced diet of a weight what? It'll never happen again, people. It'll never happen again. That's right. Yeah. Never will we get these forces aligned. Graham, did you want to sing us out? Bye! Ah, So lovely. So lovely. Thank you.